Hello and welcome to the For the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Brady, and I'm here today with Keisha Carter. Keisha is a certified diversity professional. She also holds a Six Sigma Green Belt from Villanova University and a professional human resources certification from the Human Resource Capital Institute. She earned her master's degree in organizational leadership from Cuca College. Keisha has broken barriers as the first ever chief diversity officer for CCSI, leading CCSI through a multi-phased approach resulting in growth and new experiences for individual employees and the organization. Keisha is a board member of Literacy Rochester, the recruitment and selection committee chair for the African-American Leadership Development Program of the United Way, a current candidate for Gatestown Council, and a current Athena Young Professional finalist. Keisha was a Democrat and Chronicle Women to Watch in October 2016, and she has facilitated diversity and inclusion workshops both locally and nationally for groups of various sizes and she's a member of zeta phi beta sorority incorporated and she lives by the words there's no such thing as failure only many different lessons in how not to do something so maybe we'll get a few of those stories somewhere <laughs> somewhere along the line thanks so much for joining us keisha absolutely thanks you so, thank you so much for having me so uh, I, I kind of wanted to start just your origin story, you know, a little bit. You know, I was looking at your, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, and you know, it looked like you you kind of started in just a, a typical training and development kind of a role before you got into this this diversity and inclusion focus. So so tell us, I guess, what what kind of inspired that that shift for you? Well, it was. I didn't really plan on it. <laughs> it kind of just happened. So um, in where I was working, I was part of the African-American Employee Resource Group. And I was really fortunate to be in a place where we did have employee resource groups. And um, I actually worked for a large insurance company here in Rochester who uh, has nine employee resource groups. And so um, I was actually one of the leaders in the African-American resource group. And through that, um, I got to have a lot of exposure with our senior leaders and bring a lot of ideas forward um, through the work that I was doing with that group. Um, at the time, I was the vice president and um, brought some ideas forward, had um, planned and executed some activities. And um, a bunch of the senior leaders had um, really started to bring me into different meetings and have conversations around ideas that I had for employees. Um, and then I had um, my mentor at the time was the um, director of internal um, diversity and inclusion, actually internal and external in diversity and inclusion. And through the work that I was doing, he tapped me on my shoulder and said, hey, you're doing some really, really good stuff. I would love for you to consider coming to work in diversity and inclusion. And so um, so I looked it up and I was like, this is everything that I do on a regular basis. So it kind of made sense. So um, I went to work in diversity and inclusion there. And that's when I actually got certified as a diversity professional, um, got all those other certifications <laughs> and um, really started to make some effective change within that organization. Um, unfortunately, you know, because of just the structure of that particular organization, um, after uh, quite a few years there, um, there wasn't more room for growth in what I wanted to do. And so that led me to the position that I'm in now as the chief diversity officer at CCSI. Yeah, it's exciting to start to see that 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 C C level title, you know, attached to diversity officer because it 
you know, maybe maybe five, ten years ago, you didn't see that very often. And no. now many, many organizations are starting to adopt it. Yeah, a lot of organizations still believe that diversity and inclusion is still, uh, it should be a part of uh, human resources. It's embedded in HR. Um, they may have an HR professional that is um, tasked with doing some diversity and inclusion kind of work. They may have um, a talent acquisition uh, individual that um, is tasked with diversity recruiting. Um, but they, a lot of organizations don't have that C-level position and um, they don't really understand how crucial it is to the work that they're doing on a regular basis. So maybe that leads us right into one of the things that kind of inspired that this conversation that I've really been looking forward to is you had a, an article that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes uh, in the in the RBJ recently where you're talking about the importance of, you know, when you're talking about diversity and inclusion and you're maybe measuring those numbers, not just looking at what the entry-level positions are uh, and, and really looking at diversity at all levels of leadership. So can can you tell us a little bit about uh, really the importance of that? And I think part of it gets to, you know, one of the points that you mentioned in terms of the difference between the diversity and the inclusion piece of it. Yeah, and I think in that article starts with something that I tell organizations and individuals frequently when I hear anyone from any organization stop by when they start and stop with, we are a diverse organization and that's it. That's really a misnomer because on, on many levels, one, because a lot of times they're looking at the totality of the organization. They're looking at all of the employees and not really slicing and dicing that data and looking at the fact that it's really heavy in diversity in all respects of diversity. We're talking about gender, race, sexual orientation, um, everything that is in the scope of diversity. Um, And so they're not looking at how bottom heavy that is. And as you start to look up in the ranks within that organization, that diversity thins out quite a bit, especially when we're talking about racial diversity. Um, And so it's a misnomer in that way. And then they're also not looking at, um, really looking at particular parts of the organization and particular teams and looking at how some teams are not really bringing in that diversity of thought, nor are they bringing in gender or racial diversity as well. Yeah, and and you had some really, I've seen a handful of statistics. You mentioned a few as well in terms of you know, when you have higher, higher diversity at the executive leadership level, they financially outperform uh, gen- gender diversity by 15% when they have a racial and ethnic diversity by 35%, uh, you know, according to McKinsey. So personally, I think that the, you know, human, humanitarian case is enough, but, but if, if that is a little extra incentive, that that's good too, right? The data speaks for itself, right? Yeah. The humanitarian, yes, it's the right thing to do, but for those people who it's, that's not enough, then let the data speak to them. And if they're not really looking at the data and really internalizing that, they're not doing anything. And, and I'm going to go back to one of the things that you said in the in the difference between diversity and inclusion. And so when a lot of organizations uh, really talk about, you know, how much diversity they have, that really doesn't matter because diversity is literally just the butts in the seats. And when you talk about how diverse you are and how how much diversity you you have in an organization you have to go beyond that and look at what you're doing with that diversity are you valuing the perspectives and the backgrounds and the ideas that individuals are bringing with them because then that's how that data becomes true because if you just have diverse diversity within your organization 
that's not going to make that data true. You're, you're going to look and say, okay, we hired, you know, someone at the leadership level. We have somebody in the C-suite that, you know, is different than what we already had. That's not going to make a difference if that individual is really a token individual. But when you bring them in and you really, really not just give them a seat at the table, but you give them the plate and the fork and the knife and everything <laughs> else that. so that they can have an equitable experience like everyone else that's sitting at that table, that's when that data becomes true. Yeah, yeah, it's so important. I mean, if, if you bring diversity to the table and you and you don't allow them to to have the the voice heard, then then it's not adding anything to to the mix in terms of all of that diverse experience. And also, I think uh, you know it's really important as well when you're talking about any any company or a nonprofit organization. But when you're talking about whether it's the customers or the people that they serve and wanting the the people that are working in the company and also the leadership to, to reflect those folks because then they're going to have a better idea of, of what the needs are, be able to connect with them on a different level, all sorts of things. Absolutely. Let's be honest. Uh, turnover is expensive. And so when organizations are looking at, when they're really talking about how much turnover they have, they're really looking at it from a financial perspective because it costs a lot to bring somebody in, train them to do the position that you hired them for and then have to do that all over again multiple times. And so if you want to cut those costs, really, really invest in the inclusive practices that are necessary for the individuals that you have there. Don't just put those butts in the seats really value what they bring to the table. And there's so many things that you can do. And I I train all over the country around um, what people can do to create that inclusive environment. And that's really the most, diversity is really important. More important than that is having that inclusive environment and those equitable experiences. So can you tell us a little bit about, I don't want to give away all your secrets, but uh, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about, like, like say there's a, an organization and they're, they're recognizing maybe that we've been focused on the diversity for a while, but, but maybe haven't been doing a, as great of a job with the inclusion, or they're noticing that they're having a high, higher turnover with, you know, with the folks that, that feel like they're, they're being, you know, tokens or whatever, you know, a, a, as you're mentioning. So what are some of the things that you'd recommend for a, I, I'm sure there's certain things that at the individual individual level in terms of, you know, implicit bias and things like that, but, but also, you know, for a business owner, what would be some of the, some of the things that, you know, a business should start to adopt in some of their practices? Two, two of the most simple things that any organization can do, whether it is, um, in any team, whether it is a supervisory level, a, um, a director level, whatever it is in team meetings, or whenever there are requests for ideas, the leader of that team, the leader in title of that team should speak last. That is one of the simplest things that you can do because what tends to happen is the leader comes in and they're all fired up about or they're or they're really down in the dumps because their butt is on the line for something and they're looking for ideas on how a process could be different or they're looking for some innovation around uh, something that the, the organization is looking to do and they immediately start spitting out all of their ideas and then they open it up and then everybody's like, well... I'm not really going to say anything because you're supposed to be the smartest person here or you're supposed to be the leader. So I'm going to jump on to one of the things that you said. So the easiest thing that they could do is to speak last, lay the format out for what it is they're looking for, and then let all of the team members bring their ideas forward. Um, And then because what, what, what happens there is that leader is responsible for whatever it is that they're 
leading in that organization, whatever business process they're leading. And they're laying awake. These are the things that keep them awake at night all of the time. So they're laying awake at night thinking about a million things, a million different ways that they can change this process or whatever it may be. And, but they only know what they know. And so all of that experience and perspective and backgrounds from the individuals on their teams can bring in so many other ideas. And so although they may have, that leader may have an an absolutely wonderful idea, somebody else may have an equally wonderful idea. And maybe if you put those two ideas together, they could be extremely fabulous. Or maybe that one idea that somebody else brings forward is even better than what the leader could think of. And so that is one of the simplest things that, I mean, it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't take any additional time. That is the simplest thing. Another thing that um, organizations can do is um, they can start to, and this is really helpful, especially when you have um, introverts um, on a team, they can really start to look at who's speaking up in a team meeting and um, oftentimes assign a different person um, throughout each meeting to be what it's called the 10th man. And I don't like it because it says man and not woman or people person, but it's based on the Yom Kippur rule. And, um, and I'm not going to go into a whole history lesson, but you can absolutely look up the Yom Kippur rule. And it's basically based on the fact that no matter how many people you have involved in a decision, even if everyone agrees with whatever decision is on the table, one person has to disagree. And the reason that one person has to disagree is because that dissent in thought will bring up different ideas and make people really take a 360 view at what it is they're agreeing on and think about, well, what about this? What about that? Maybe we missed something. And so if you, if a leader assigns a different person every time in a meeting to be that 10th man, so to speak, or that, that voice of dissent, then one, it doesn't have to be the same person. Please don't make it the same person every time because then everybody's going to be like, oh my gosh, here comes Keisha again. She's going to be the, you know, yeah, Nelly naysayer, Debbie Downer. And so, um, so it doesn't have to be the same person every time. And also you get, um, more, input from everybody when you make it somebody different, because then that person has to think of those. It's like, you know, debate class when you're in like eighth grade, you have to think of the opposite side, even when you agree so that you generate that, those ideas that are different than what you already had. I I was, I was thinking of the debate as well. I never, (laughs) I never did like debate team or anything, but I think it's so fascinating. You you basically get randomly assigned to which side you're going to debate for. So it doesn't, I think we, we could all just as uh, Americans and, and as humans in general do, do, do well to put ourselves in, in the shoes of the opposite side sometimes to just think through, you know, maybe we were, it's not going to change our mind, but at least we'll, we'll see maybe some of the, some of the things that led to that, that uh, position that they hold. Yeah. Really simple things that don't even cost any money. <laughs> you yeah. know? And you got that for free. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me now, um, like, like what are some of the best practices that, that you've seen? Cause it, it strikes me as you're talking that, um, some of these things are, are great for building an inclusive culture, but you know, quite honestly, those are, those are best practices for, for any organization, no matter what, in terms of building a team that's, you know, getting the most out of all the individuals and not being old school command and control leadership and, you know, engaging all the, all the employees and things like that. Um, But what are some of the best practices then in terms of, as we were talking about earlier, making sure that um, not only 
that they feel included and they feel like their voice is heard, but that they are given those opportunities to uh, reach higher leadership roles uh, in an organization. So one of the things, especially, so at CCSI, um, one of the things that we actually have done, I, I, it feels weird to say we're, we, we are going to do because we actually are doing it now, um, is we created um, equivalencies for all of our job postings. And so um, it's really important for us being a part of the Rochester community to really make the positions that we have um, equitable opportunities for the folks in the community. And so we understand we've, we have a serious commitment to doing whatever we can to help dismantle uh, systemic racism. And one of the things that we understand as we look back in history with um, the systemic and structural racism is that um, there have been traditionally inequitable opportunities for, especially for people of color, for um, in education. And so um, creating those uh, equivalencies, and what I mean by that is um, if you look at our job descriptions, for anything that um, does not have um, particular... Uh, credentialing that is associated with it, because we do have some positions that you have to have certain credentialing. Um, for anything that does not have that particular credentialing, the equivalency chart is embedded in that job description. And so if the job description states that a uh, four-year uh, college degree is um, wanted um, or preferred, and then in parentheses next to that, it will say or equivalent with a link to our equivalency chart. And because of that, we are giving the opportunities for individuals that um, may not have that formal education, but they have those life experiences and they have that real work experience to have an equitable opportunity at that position as well. Yeah, I think that's really important. I, I've actually seen, I'm not sure specifically to um, for, for ethnic diversity, but I, I know I've seen gender diversity-wise how it makes a big difference uh, when when there's that list of like 10 bullets that you need to apply to the job that if, a, if for whatever reason, you know, the way we've been conditioned, like if a man is like, oh, I, I hit like three of those, they'll apply to the yes. job. But if the woman doesn't hit all 10, she, she'll she be hesitant to do it. So yes. I think that's really important. And that's another thing that we have done. We actually, so I... Um, um, for all new job descriptions um, and job postings, I actually personally review all new job postings before they are posted. And they are uh, reviewed. So we have a, um, a five-point process, I believe, that goes through um, human resources and myself before any new job posting is uh, posted on our website. And I say new because we've already gone through all of the existing postings. And so anytime a brand new position is um, created and uh, looking to be posted, or if an existing position is changed in some way, I review that posting before it goes on our website and I'm looking for that language. And so um, we're, we're not used to, in the English language, we, we don't have masculine and feminine words. We're not used to that. But in, um, you know, we're used to, if you've ever taken Spanish or any of the Latin languages, you know that they're masculine and feminine sure. words. Um, in the English lang language, we do have tone though. We have masculine and feminine tone to words. And so, um, so I personally take a look and vet it out and actually use um, an online system to go through and look at um, the wording in our job descriptions and our job postings to make sure we're not using those kinds of words. For, for example, um, someone with a uh, nurturing, uh, caring background versus someone uh, who has uh, attention to detail. 
So nurturing and caring are more feminine, uh, leaning more toward the feminine side where uh, attention to detail is more gender neutral. And so making sure we have that gender gender neutral language in our job postings, as well as um, ensuring that our job postings uh, pass the... um, the test and, and many of our um, external communications pass the test of um, reading level. And so we want to make sure we're not putting so much jargon into the postings and our external communications. We make sure that they are at a fifth grade reading level um, so that or under so that anyone reading them can understand. It's not to... Um, not to say that other individuals may not understand, but we may have jargon that is internal for us that other people may not understand. So we want to make sure that it is something that no matter who is reading it, we want them to be able to understand what we're doing. Mm. I'm thinking now, as you're mentioning all this, kind of like that that full employee life cycle, right? Like, okay, so here we we post a job. We want to make sure that it's a got inclusive language and it's not excluding you know anyone or making them feel like they they can't um, you know they they can't apply for it if they if they might be uh, eligible. Um, now I'm, I'm thinking next about how do, how, how do you as a, as a diversity professional, uh, help with, uh, for example, the, like the interview process, what, what are some of the things that, that you can, that you can work into that interview process to make sure that that's inclusive? So you mentioned that the biases that we all, we all have them. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, conscious biases, we have unconscious biases, um, those implicit things that we're not even sure why they're there or why we're acting in a certain way, um, Another, so here, I'm giving away all of my tips, Andrew, for free today, but one of the things that um, any organization can do is have standard uh, interview questions. And so um, if you have the standard interview questions, then that takes out, um, it, it reduces the um, opportunity for bias to come into play. And so um, one, making sure that every candidate for um, each, for one position is asked the same questions. Um, and then two, ensuring that the the questions, um, so developing five standard questions that are used across the entire organization, um, regardless of whatever it is. And so you really, it, it really involves the um, leadership in the organization to really take a look at their, their mission, their vision, and their values, because those questions should be centered around those things. Because you really, if you know what your culture is or where, you're, where you want to go with your culture, then you should really be looking to hire for the culture that you want to have. And so having those questions um, centered in a way that really speaks to those things. And then for the particular position, uh, including three or so questions that are really tied to that particular position, if there's skills that that are you know necessary having those questions, but ma- making sure that there is another set of eyes and not just the hiring manager developing and asking those questions, and including other people in the interview process as well. Yeah, well, in, in, as you mentioned, uh, you know some implicit biases. I've seen all kinds of research where you know if you have ethnic sounding names, that people are less likely to get uh, you know called for for the interviews and things. Is there is there anything um, that that you all do or that you've seen or best practices? Either is it personal training to overcome that or is it removing the names altogether on the on the oh, application? Oh, I'd love to get to removing names, but that is something you don't have to, uh, my name, my first name is Lakeisha. So you don't get more, well, you could get more ethnic, but that is right there in the ethnic realm. So really, really experiencing that, you know, really my whole entire life. And then, um, and so 
right now what I'm doing is I'm looking at um, some artificial intelligence um, vendors to be able to remove some of the uh, personally identifiable information from the applications and the resumes um, so that we can, again, reduce that amount of bias that hiring managers are utilizing when they're vetting those out and looking to see who they want to give a callback to. So instead of seeing that they want to give Keisha Carter a callback or do they want to give Andrew Brady a callback, they will look and see, do I want to give candidate number 924 a callback? And so, um, so they don't get to know um, that identifying information about that individual until after that individual is scheduled for an interview. And so that's why I'm vetting out some uh, vendors right now. And there's some really good stuff out there. Um, because with the AI that I'm one of the vendors um, that I'm looking at, they have you have the ability to go in and put in um, so for us, we have our operating principles, which are like our values. Mm -hmm. And so um, we have the ability to go in and put in our operating principles and for each position, um, weigh them. And so uh, one of our, operation, our, our operating principles is uh, innovation. And so for a particular position, innovation may weigh higher than um, community focus, let's say. So... Um, and so we can weight them differently. And so when the individuals are applying, the um, AI vendor has um, already set up particular uh, questions. There's only about five or so that an individual will answer and it will link them and it'll give you a diagram of where they fall on that weighted scale uh, of our operating principles. And so, yeah, so I'm so excited about that. I can't wait until we actually have this in place. It'll be another year or so before we actually have something like that in place. Um, but because it is costly and um, it does take time to vet out the vendors to really, really look at what, what it is that we want to have in place long term. And so I don't want to jump to something uh, quickly that we may have to change in the future if it doesn't suit our needs. That's next level. I love yeah. that. I love that. In terms of, I mean, I, you know, I, again, it kind of is, is the, the more that, that we've been talking, the more you see a lot of these things are, yes, let's make sure that we're, we're doing it in, in an inclusive way, but ultimately that makes for a better culture for everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's voice is heard. Everyone, you know, is, is asking, or we're, we're, we're doing these, some of these interview questions that, that try to get at people that, you know, fit some of the, some of the, the values and the things that they were aiming for and, you know, trying to, trying to create that, that culture of our organization. So, um, really, really inclusive principles are, so in some, in some ways can be, can be universal, you know, good, good for everyone. Yeah. And for hiring managers to look at their teams and look at and really, really get to know the people on their teams and really take a hard look at, do I have people that kind of think all the same? Maybe I need to bring somebody in that thinks differently. For sure. Do I have people that have, you know, very similar educational backgrounds? Maybe I need to bring somebody in that has something different because those different perspectives are going to give you better ideas than what you already have. Great. So it's 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 good for it's good for the culture and the engagement. It's probably good for the the innovation and and I'd like to think anyways part of the principles of conscious capitalism that ends up being good for the bottom line in the long run too. Absolutely, and it's job security. Yeah, <laughs> hey, no shame in that. Uh, so tell me a little bit because um, we've we've mentioned uh, CCSI a few times. For those that aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about because it is a, a very broad organization. There's a, there's a lot under that umbrella. So tell us a little bit about the organization that uh, that you're. How how long has it been? now? So I've been there for a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so it took me about eight months to really wrap my head around I what CCSI does. So uh, Coordinated Care Services, Inc., or CCSI, is um, an organization. It's a nonprofit organization 
organization that provides um, back office support, um, business management, project management, uh, consulting, financial services, HR, diversity and inclusion for other nonprofits and municipalities across New York State. And so um, some of our business management functions um, would fall into, so uh, the work that I do with some other organizations uh, falls under business management or some of the human resources consulting work that we do with other organizations falls under that. Um, And then we have a consulting team that focuses on um, trauma-informed care um, and the the mindfulness and um, being able to understand what those are, what... um, how they work and what, how it's, why it's important to understand those, especially in different school districts. Um, and then our project management team um, does, I mean, that's probably the simplest. They do project management data na- uh, analysis for other organizations. Um, and so we, we do anything from if we have, if there's a small nonprofit that really needs um, some HR support, but they can't afford to have one dedicated um, human resource officer. We have individuals or we can hire individuals that could work, let's say, 50% for Organization A as the uh, chief HR officer and 50% for Organization B. So that individual is paid full-time by 100% by CCSI, but they have that responsibility to two different organizations. And so that way, that takes a little bit of the lift off of one particular organization. We do the same for um, comptrollers and CFOs for organizations as well. Mm. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of that, I think, so important, especially for as Rochester becomes from, from what, what it once was of the big three to, to now really having a, uh, you know, more of an ecosystem of, of small businesses. I think it ultimately leads to a, a more resilient economy, um, but there's also so many of those things where it's tough without the economies of scale to have your own HR director, to have your own project management, mm-hmm. whatever those sorts of things. So Yeah, and many of our, many of our contracts are long-term, but we do you know, if there's something that uh, an organization knows that they'll need for the next three years, then we can do that as well. So, um, so we have our hands in quite a lot and it's, it's difficult, especially for in my position where I focus on internal, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion for our CCSI employees, keeping in mind that, um, 70% 70% or so of our CCSI employees do not report to our CCSI buildings. They work in school buildings, um, in county offices, uh, in different programs for other uh, nonprofits. And so they probably, you know, maybe once a year come into our, um, our CCSI offices and they, many of them, especially here in Monroe County, we have uh, individuals that work for Monroe County programs they feel very much embedded in the work that they do for Monroe County. So if you, they have Monroe County badges and everything. So if you were to talk to them, CCSI is the employer of record and, you know, we pay them, they have our benefits. But if you were to ask them where they work, they may say Monroe County. Yeah. So how do you, I, you know, how do you build a culture? Uh, you know, because, because I think culture, you know, where, where people feel included in a part of something is so important. What is there been anything? I'm sure, I'm sure it's an ongoing challenge, but you know, whether it's like you're dealing with, or some are just, you know, they have companies that are where there's more people working from home Mm -hmm. or remote or whatever. How do you, any best practices or ideas for building culture in that 
case? I think really, you know, communication with the employees is extremely important. So find the vehicles that, you know, nobody wants to get more emails. You don't want to communicate via email, but finding what works for the employees that you have and utilizing that. And so like many organizations, you know, I've worked for organizations before that we, you know, we try something and we're, you know, we do this huge push for here's the thing that we're going to do. And then it kind of fizzles out. And by the third time that you do that, then employers are like, yeah, I'm not really going to get behind that yet. I'll wait another year to see if that really sticks. And so really following through with what it is you say you're going to do. And so for us, we have um, an internal newsletter that is um, published every uh, Friday and it does get pushed out via email, but employees know that and it gets pushed out at 6 a.m. So by the time most employees are uh, booting up their machine, it's already there in their emails. And so it comes out on Friday. So even if they, and they can access it on their phone over the weekend if they want to or whatever it is, but that's one way that we share information. Um, I do monthly diversity inclusion videos um, around different topics. Um, And so anything from um, what I started out with, what is diversity? What is inclusion? How are they the same? How are they different? Um, Moving into things like intersectionality, um, unconscious biases. Um, And so I've been doing those since the beginning of 2019. And so that's something, and they've picked up a lot of traction. So now instead of just me in front of the camera, we're looking at um, actually bringing in other employees and doing kind of like table talks and recording those so that it's not just my words and my perspective. Now it is a group of me. It's me with uh, facilitating a conversation with um, some of our employees, four to five employees uh, every month. And so sharing that information is really helpful for the folks that are not in the office every day. Um, and then um, doing some special things. We, we really have taken a, an approach where um, we understand that, you know, when you're on this journey, it, if you think of it like um, the mobile walkways at an airport, especially as we're on this journey to helping to dismantle structural racism, um, if you are on this walkway, this mobile walkway, and you're headed toward, let's say there's a huge sign that says racism is here. If you're on that walkway, even when you're not moving, even if you're not walking physically, you're moving toward it. You may be Mm. moving a little slower than someone else. And so how do we then get people to go the other way and not go toward racism? And so one of the things that we're doing um, is we actually have um, group conversations. We have a really large kitchen area. It's really large. Um, And so we will, if there's something going on with a particular employee, then um, if they're open to um, speaking about it, if there's something that happens that affects that employee, they're open to talking about it. We love to share those stories and have individuals come and hear that and ask those questions. So we had an employee um, a few months back who had some uh, issues with the police department where she lives. Um, She lives in um, a suburb of the Rochester area, actually right outside of Monroe County she lives. And um, and there was a story in the Democrat and Chronicle about her and everything. And so, um, you know, knowing that people had read this and read um, her issues with the police department in her area, we said instead of having people tell their own stories and, and making up, filling in the gaps on their own, let's have her, if she's open to it, facilitate just a conversation with any employee that wants to come ask any questions. And so she was absolutely open to it. We had employees come in. We set aside some time. Uh, Everybody came in. We had about, uh, I don't even know how many people we had in there. It was probably about 60 or so people came. And um, 
she just talked about her story and we had people ask questions um, and there were things, um, and this is an employee of color and we had people ask, uh, say things like, wow, I never thought about how me being a white person can get in my car and drive somewhere and never have to think about anything. And we had other people, you know, we had one employee that uh, talked about being, uh, she is white and being married to a black man. And um, one day her husband was leaving with his brothers to go um, and do something. And they all asked each other, you know, you got your ID, you got your ID. And she's like, you're going down the street. I don't understand. And he's like, oh, for us, we have to make sure we have that. And she was like, wow. I didn't even realize being married to him for a few years, didn't even realize that. And so it really facilitated those, those conversations and those things that people don't typically talk about at work. We talk about them. Wow. I, I mean, I'm, I'm blown away the, the vulnerability and the courage to, to do that. And then, and also the, the way that that humanizes and, and I'm sure bonds, you know, the, the, the employees and the culture that's, that's really powerful. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's things, you know, that was a particular incident with one employee, but even, you know, when we have, um, over the last uh, earlier part of the year, when there were tragedies, um, where, you know, the synagogue was, um, you know, had a tragedy in Pittsburgh, um, you know, knowing that we have Jewish employees that may be, you know, they may not be directly affected if they did or did not have, uh, family members or loved ones that were there. Um, but knowing that because their faith was rocked at that moment and um, everything that they had, everything that about them was, you know, really tested in that moment and, and knowing that they could have had some particular feelings, we asked if, you know, there was anyone that wanted to come forward and have a conversation. And we had a conversation around the feelings that, you know, the feelings of safety and, and not feeling safe and the feelings of, uh, you know, humanity that and we just had a conversation around it. Hmm. So what do you do on the on the personal level? Because I, I, I know that, um, like, I, I, I was looking at the website. I know one of the things that, that CCSI does, they have some, some poverty simulations. I know that there's been, uh, I did one of those for the first time when I was in college and, and had a really impactful experience. And, and I'm sure you've seen as well the, like, the, the, the privilege walk where, mm-hmm. you know, you take a step forward for all these different yes. things. And, I, you know, I, I check most of the boxes. So I, I you know, I, I end up at the front of that line and just, it, it opens your eyes to a lot of things, right? Um, but at the same time, I feel like sometimes when we've tried, whether in the young professional community or different different things that I'm a part of, to organize some of those things, sometimes you get the folks that are, um, are already already the 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 converted, and not to say that they can't continue to learn more. I think I always continue to to learn and need like a like a booster shot of, of some of those things every once in a while. Um, but what what do you try to do? Because in in some ways I'm like, okay, well let's let's take who we've got uh, and you know make in in part of you know conscious capitalism, all those sorts of things is those companies that really embrace it. They're going to in the long run be more successful. But do you have any, um, especially if you're in a if you're leading a company where you have some people who just aren't open to this conversation or, or whatever, um, any, any kind of best practices to hopefully start to open their mind or get the conversation started? For me personally, I, I try and find what speaks to that individual. And so if it is, you know, if I'm talking to an individual that comes from a place of um, a lot of privilege, like you talked about, if you, you know, if you do that privilege walk and you end up way ahead of, you know, somebody like me who didn't grow up with those things, then, you know, finding something that matters to that individual. And so sometimes it is not having the direct conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, race, gender, you know, xenophobia, whatever it may be, not having those conversations, but just having 
having conversations about that person and just getting to know that person. And so for me, it is really hearing what someone says and really understanding what makes them tick. And then I can have a conversation that speaks to that individual and not just a blanket conversation that I would have. I can pick up and drop with anyone that I'm talking to, but a conversation that's really meaningful to that person. And sometimes it really is just, you know what, we're, we're not going to see eye to eye, but I want to walk away knowing that you respect where I'm coming from and knowing that you at least acknowledge the things that I have experienced in my life and know that those are real. That's really at the, all I can ask for because if you acknowledge that, then that means that you've stepped a little bit outside your comfort zone for someone who, you know, I've, I've encountered people who, you know, say, well, you know, black people feel like what, and, and I'm like, no, it's not that we, it is what's really happening to people that look like me. And so to get them to change that, that mindset from people, you know, insert whatever identity, these people feel like whatever to hear something that they experienced, then that is, that's a win. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just makes me think, you know, there's, even even if that that original conversation doesn't doesn't you know solve solve everything and you know in twenty minutes or something, um, I've personally experienced and I've seen it happen as well. Where something that you might initially be you know a, a little bit resistant to uh, the idea of that seed gets planted, you start to pay a little bit more mm-hmm. attention and you start to you know maybe see and and you know uh, swallow your pride a little bit and, and recognize that there was a, a little, a little bit more truth to it, or, or at least just another, another facet, another perspective to consider. Yeah. When you know better, you do better. And so the more that you are open to hearing those things, the more the, they start to become more evident. You're like, wait, how did I not notice this before? And it's been there the whole time, but now you notice it because there's been a seed planted for you. Yeah. Yeah, really important. And, and, and those stories too. I, I can only imagine that, you know, if you hear someone telling a story, as you were mentioning, you know, in, in your, you know, one of your employees and whatever, whatever's impacting them and, you know, you see, oh, well, I'm a, you know, yes, we have maybe different backgrounds, different languages, different this, that, or the other thing, but we're both moms or we're both dads right. or we're both, you know, these different things that we have in common and recognizing, um, Oftentimes, there's a lot more overlap than uh, than if we if we uh, if we give it a chance to to have that conversation and recognize that. Yeah, it changes the narrative from oh my gosh, that's really horrible that something is happening to these people that I identify in this way. To oh my goodness, something happened to people that identify in this way. I know Keisha identifies in that way. I wonder how it's affecting her. And so it becomes it humanizes it. Um, so much more. And so when you know somebody that may be affected by something, you're more likely to take notice and stand up and be an ally for that. So kind of along those lines, I know that there's a a big project that you've been working on that kind of kicked off relatively recently. I remember hearing about it with the racial equity and justice, um, Reggie. And, and so, um, tell us a little bit about kind of that project, what, what, what that started off, what, what started it and, and where it is now. So, um, Reggie is the racial equity justice initiative, um, which is led by St. Joseph's neighborhood center. And, um, they are currently in their second cohort. So the first cohort um, included uh, individuals from CCSI prior to me even working at CCSI. So they had a mind for this work and they knew that they wanted to do something. So it's uh, organizations from the greater Rochester area. Um, I think cohort one had 27 or so 
different organizations involved. Cohort two, I think they're up to like 33 organizations now. Um, and so the first cohort uh, came together and it was a year long um, experience where uh, that started out with uh, a two-day immersion experience led by Dr. Ken Hardy. Um, so St. Joseph's Neighborhood Center brought him in um, to Rochester and he talked about um, and I was able to go back and watch the video because I wasn't part of CCSI when they did hmm. this experience. But the good thing is um, my position exists at CCSI as a result of the work that no they were kidding. doing. Absolutely. So um, so Ken Hardy came in and for two days he really laid it on the line. He, he talked about very openly about um, racism and um, white fragility and the subjugated and, you know, what are, what are the tasks of the subjugated and what are the tasks of the privilege in order to come together and do this work and um, how, um, you know, s groups of white people need to understand that um, it is not always a black person's or a person of color's job to teach them everything. And so I can't be the spokesperson for every black woman out there. I can be the spokesperson for myself. And there may be other black women that do things and act in the same way that I do, but I can't speak for them. I can speak for myself. And so as I speak for myself, then it is up to individuals that are in earshot of that to then go and do some research and do some work on their own. And that research doesn't have to be textbook stuff research. It could be talking to people that you may not have talked to before, mm. expanding your networks and getting to know other people. And so, um, so they, they did this work. And so, um, the Reggie work is really focused on, uh, organizations that made a commitment to, and so now, as I mentioned, there were 27 in the first cohort. There are now 33, uh, in the second cohort. So I'm not extremely good at math, but that is, what is that? 60? 60. Yeah. Um, 60 organizations in the Rochester area. Well, actually, let me take that back because some of the second cohort um, have new employees there. Sure. That, so there, there's about, I would say, 10, 15 of those. So, you know, so about 45 total organizations in the um, Rochester area that have made a dedicated commitment to dismantling structural racism. And I think that is huge to have such a large scale of work being done. And again, it's led by St. Joseph's Neighborhood Center. And um, so the individuals come together. So cohort one went through and they did, you know, this set work for uh, about a year and a half. And so now cohort one is continuing the work. And one of the things that we're doing is coming together as, so it was more about the education and taking that information initially uh, being part of the cohort. And now it is about as you are, as you have taken that information, what are you as organizations doing with that? What are the best practices? So we're coming together and sharing the information that we are doing internally. So if I get to sit at a table with uh, individuals from other organizations from cohort one and talk about how we've included the um, education equivalencies in our job postings, another organization may say, wow, I didn't even think about that. Help us do that same thing. And so we get to share that information and it's all for the greater good of the greater Rochester area, which makes me so happy. And I, like, I just, I get chills when I think about it because it, it's all just to benefit. It's, you know, it, it is, a, it's a great business practice, but it is 
truly and wholeheartedly to benefit our community because we want to do the work that's necessary to break down those barriers, to decrease poverty in our areas. And so, you know, if we're all, and these are mostly nonprofit organizations that have, that are doing this work. These are the organizations that are serving the community on a regular basis. We can't serve the community if we don't know how to serve the community, if we don't know what the basic needs are in the community. So let's do whatever we can to be able to open those doors and break down those barriers. I, I love that. And and I did hear when it when it came uh, came out and I did see the, the list and it was an extensive list of organizations in the community. Um, and at the same time, I'm wondering how do we encourage more more businesses to to commit to that as well, not just the nonprofits, not just to see this as something you know for the nonprofit sector. Is there anything because we do have a lot of business owners, you know, that are mm-hmm. listeners that that are at various stages of of a journey towards a more conscious, inclusive way of doing business? Um, we already mentioned, you know, some of the the, the bottom line impacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but what would you say to to a listener, you know, in terms of getting getting involved or getting either themselves as the business owner or their you know their chief diversity officer or whoever is their head of diversity and inclusion? involved in that so that we can get the business sector to support that as well? For I, I think it is, so I'm going to get really, really like, I'm going to ask people to look internally first and think about if you, you know, if you are a CEO, a business owner, um, a CFO, uh, you know, whatever it is, if you are in an organization and you go home and think about your children, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors, whatever, if they asked you where you worked and what you were most proud of, could you really tell them something other than, you know, sealing that million dollar deal or whatever it is? How, you know, what's the impact you're having on the community? If someone were to ask you, what are you most proud of and how does it, let me change that question. What are you most proud of and how does it affect the community? What could you tell them? And if you don't have an answer for that, then that's, there's your answer for why you should be involved. And, you know, to that vein, we need the CEOs and the all of the leaders who have been involved in Reggie and anything like that to talk to their colleagues and say, you know, why aren't you doing this? Let's hold them to task. Let's, you know, let's start to talk about the organizations that are doing these wonderful things. Let's talk about those organizations a lot. And let's not keep talking about the organizations that are, you know, that are doing things to say, oh, they, you know, they're making a lot of money. But what are they? How are they utilizing that to impact the community for good? So let's talk about those organizations that are doing amazing things, and let's change our mindset around what are what those amazing things are. And you know, we need those those leaders to hold their colleagues accountable. I love it. Well, I, I, I actually, I'll make sure that I put the information for, for Reggie in the, in the show notes so that hopefully we can get some, we can get some folks that are, uh, that are listeners that are in the conscious capitalism community or, uh, you know, listeners of the podcast to, to really hopefully in that next cohort to, to bring in some, some more for-profit, uh, you know, businesses. But one of the things, it's a perfect way to wrap up because you're mentioning, you know, going home and talking to your kids about what you're proud of and, and the way that you ended your, your RBJ article just spoke to me so much. You're a, you, you said, 
that maybe one day the need for special monikers such as African-American CEO or female CFO or gay COO will no longer be needed because they won't be so rare as to warrant the special attention. And so um, I'm so grateful to have you here today, have you in our community um, to do that kind of work to, to make that happen Thanks. so that hopefully those uh, th those children uh, in future leaders in Rochester, maybe uh, maybe we can drop those monikers. Um, so so thanks so much for the work that you're doing. And uh, I hope that we can have you on again in, in, in the future. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Wicked Squid Studios, Rochester, New York's premier podcast development team. The Wicked Squid family brings ideas to life through the art of audio production. From custom jingles and creative services to studio memberships and educational curriculum, their outfit strives to empower all members of society to build a more equal and colorful world. Learn more about their operation at wickedsquidstudios.com.